Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Oh, I'm back to Herd Tell. We haven't talked to our friend Alex Salter in a while. Glad to have him back. He's one of these economists, fellas. He's going to explain all those big numbers and data sets and unexpectedly to us. So good that even I can understand it. How are you, sir? Good to see you again. Doing great. Thanks for having me back. You got a book out. We'll get to it in just a minute. But I always ask our economist friends around there on the show. I'm going to ask you because we hadn't seen you in a while. Why can't we talk about this economy? Because the experts are saying it one way. The news media covers it one way. A lot of folks are still hurting with inflation. We just had a data set came out that the average family spending about, give or take, about $700 more right now than they did this time a year ago. The media talks about it one way. The economists talk about it one way. The politics. Why can't everybody get on the same page about this economy? It is a little complicated and a little unusual, but shouldn't we be able to at least talk about it a little better than what we're doing? Yeah, it's unfortunate when political spin takes precedence over economic analysis of the fundamentals, which is unfortunately what is happening. I look at the economy right now, and I'm glad that inflation seems to be coming down, and it's doing so in a way that does not portend a great deal of economic harm. I'm looking at a fundamentally, I won't say strong, but robust economy in the sense that I don't think that we have a recession coming up. I'm pleased that the Federal Reserve is doing what's needed to do to bring inflation back down, although we can only give them so much credit since they made the mess in the first place. Now, you can acknowledge those successes without trumpeting the line that everything is great. This is one of the strongest economies we've ever had. Families are doing fantastic. No, they aren't. They're starting to recover to the point where things were about two years ago in terms of purchasing power, and that's a good thing. But let's not pretend that this is not something that had to happen. It did not have to happen. We could have fought the economic fallout from the pandemic without creating massive inflation and burdening working families. And so I think that that's something that various officials elected or appointed ultimately have to own. You hit something really important there that I want to make sure we don't skip over because we all say it. I'm guilty of it. The economists on TV doing talking head and do it a lot. You mentioned fundamentals. Just for folks that are trying to keep up, when they're looking at a headline or they're looking at a newspaper piece or whatever the case may be, People always mention the fundamentals, but just for the average person trying to be informed on the economy, what's the fundamentals they should actually work at? Give us that nomenclature and a couple of the things they should be digging out of all those headlines and all those charts and graphs to actually pay attention to, because I think that's an important way to understand this. Sure. So I think the first two things you want to look at are the unemployment rate and the rate of economic growth. That's where most economists will start when they're trying to figure out how's the economy doing right now? What's it likely to do in the short to medium run? Unemployment looks pretty strong, three and a half percent. That's near historic lows. 
the economy itself in terms of inflation adjusted growth, right? You can't just count dollars because what a dollar is isn't constant. You flood the market with dollars and dollars become less valuable. But if you adjust that, if you look at goods and services produced, cars, laptops, air travel, clothes, food, shelter, all that stuff, the economy is growing at roughly 2% per year. And that's not amazing by historic standards, but neither is it bad. It's certainly not shrinking. We might wish that we had faster growth, and I think that there are some policies that we could embrace that would result in faster growth. But on the whole, I think it's encouraging that the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, has managed to bring down inflation without unduly burdening the economy. Now, there have been burdens, don't get me wrong. Real wages, inflation-adjusted wages, have only just now caught up with inflation. Most families for the last two years, as you notice, have taken a pay cut. And that's something that they have legitimate cause to be angry about. Nonetheless, you could have easily foreseen a situation where fiscal and monetary policy were much worse than they actually were. And instead of bringing inflation down gently, we just crashed the economy. And that would have been far worse. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. Here's the thing about that, and you just mentioned it in passing. Here again, we're talking about these things the post-COVID economy changed people's perception of the economy, especially things like the service sector, especially things like how the politicians talk about the economy, how they can control it, but they also claim they don't control it and these sorts of things. How do we parse through that? Because people got an educational and economics that was somewhat unique in COVID and now in the post-COVID return. I'm not sure anybody really fully understands it, though. Is that a fair way to kind of lay out part of the problem right now? I think the most important lesson from the pandemic is it's a vindication of elementary economics, the fundamentals that we were talking about. Take all the pandemic policies, the post-pandemic policies, what do they amount to? On the one hand, you're constricting the supply side of the economy, stay-at-home orders, lockdown, social distancing, all that stuff. You're making it more difficult to produce and distribute goods and services. At the same time that you're restricting supply, policies are stimulating demand direct checks from the federal government, extremely accommodative monetary policy by the Federal Reserve, printing up new money to buy government bonds, basically. Well, if you reduce supply and boost demand at the same time, what's going to happen to prices? Up, up, up they go. This is exactly what you're going to get in any introductory economics class in the country. This is not something that should surprise us, and we should have seen it coming. More economists should have been sounding the alarm about this. So in one sense, the damage, the harm that it's imposed on families is not obviously something that we should welcome. On the other hand, the silver lining is we understand that we have the toolkits to talk about this and talk about this intelligently. We don't need to throw out the playbook. Everything old is new again. Yeah, Alexander Salter, let's talk about the political side of economics for just a second, because we've been talking about recession. We may probably won't have one now, or at least we're hoping we're not going to have one. Do we in the news media and the folks, do we overly obsess over recession? Because it is bad, but in the modern era, the spectrum of Jimmy Carter and stagflation and all that, that's a thing. You know, Barack Obama wrote into office off the 2008 economic trouble. Politicians are scared to death of the R word. Do we overfocus? Has it become kind of like the unemployment number where we just talk about recession, unemployment, we skip all the rest of economics and don't get a full, complete picture? Because it kind of feels like right now it's like recession or not recession, but there's a lot more to talk about than just that part of it, even though we all understand a recession would be bad. There is more to talk about, and I'm glad that you brought that up. To answer the first question, the reason that the politicians care so much is because there's a lot of good data out there showing that voters basically vote their current economic circumstances. 
And so if the economy is in the doldrums when it comes election time, that's probably a sign that the incumbents are going to get kicked out and new people are going to come in. So obviously no politician wants that to happen on their watch. But in terms of getting deeper than the unemployment numbers, there are some troubling trends that might cast that unemployment number in not so good a light. For example, the labor force participation rate, basically the fraction of the working age population that's even in the labor force looking for a job, that's gone down significantly since the pandemic. Rise in disabilities, people who are claiming disabilities and are therefore not in the labor force, that's sharply risen since the pandemic. So you do have some of these long-term trends that suggest, okay, unemployment is very low, but that might be because we're sampling among a group of people that are already in the labor force looking for a job doing okay. What about all the people who are no longer in the labor force, but by historical standards, quote unquote, should be? That's also a sign of economic health or lack thereof. And we do need to pay attention to these longer term trends. Now, those longer term trends aren't so much about recessions and depressions or expansions or anything like that. They're more about can the economy continue to grow sustainably over the long run? And that's not as sexy a topic. It doesn't grab headlines in the same way as recessions do. But if you care about the economic viability of the nation, I think that that's where your primary attention has to be. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Alexander Saltz joining us. This kind of gets us into the new book you have, the polit- the political economy of distributionism. I want to start with this part of it though, and you mentioned it in the blurb as you explained the book though. Is there's economic theory and there's economic practicality, just like any other you know discipline. One thing you bring up here, and this is a good way to intro what you're doing with the book is. Things we talk about, we've talked about this with industrial policy a lot. We're trying to apply industrial policy to big tech and it doesn't fit perfectly, but there's some principles there and we got to kind of adjust. There's economic theories and you talk about, of course, distributionism here that aren't new, but we need to kind of revise them and revisit them to the new economy that we currently have. And we need to kind of look at it that way. Just kind of explain the nomenclature distributionism, but how you're kind of taking this not new idea but trying to apply it to the new, what we're dealing with now in the year of our Lord, 2023. Writing the political economy of distributism was a lot of fun, and I'm glad to talk about that for a little bit. So the distinction that you raise that I make in the book is the important difference between the science of economics and the art of political economy. So here's what I mean by that distinction. We can speak in a value-free way about the way that the economy works. As the price of bread falls, all else being equal, people are going to buy more bread. That is a scientific proposition about human behavior. Whatever the true moral theory of the world is, the demand curve for bread is going to slope down in that world. That's what I mean by the science of economics, the causal relationships 
among variables that we care about that explain and render intelligible human decision making. And we need economic science because you can't analyze the economy without a scientific perspective of human behavior under conditions of scarcity. But just because you need economics does not mean that economics by itself is going to help you analyze what makes for a good society. You also need what I call the art of political economy in which you're willing to debate, not just whether the strategies that you've chosen can help you achieve your goals, but are your goals worthy of achieving in the first place? Do you have good goals? Do we have good social values? How do we weight these trade-offs when we bring in moral considerations? The analogy that I like to use is medicine. So obviously medicine is a scientific discipline, but the reason that doctors get involved in medicine in the first place is because they have a deep moral commitment to promoting health and happiness in human persons. Now, you can't promote health and happiness without doing value-free scientific medicine, but the science is for the purpose of this broader ethical goal, human flourishing. So we need to understand the domain of scientific economics, the domain of artful political economy, and how to understand the bridge between the two. Because if we don't get both of those parts right, we're going to get trapped in this partisan doom loop that we currently have going on right now, and we're never going to actually have meaningful public deliberation about the foundations of a good society. Yeah, Alexander Salter joining us. You call it ethical. Its first cousin is rights. Economics, if you're going to talk about ethical economics, there's some basic rights, right? Right to private property, right to, you know, you know, we, we over abuse the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of economic well-being, those two things are pretty well entangled, at least in my opinion. You can give me yours. Do we need to have some basic understanding of economic ethics and economic rights, not just the American system, but just in, you know, those basic human principle kind of things like you have a right to earn, you have a right to get what's yours, and then you have a right to keep it and use it mostly as you see fit within the way. I don't know that we've done a good job just on a basic level of explaining that building block before we jump to things like the unemployment rate or economics or distribution or socialism or capitalism. We like to use those big words. We skip over that basic part, and I think we miss a lot that way, don't we? I think we do. If we're starting with first principles, we, especially as Americans, have to start with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, like you just said. Now, it's important to note that the founders did not mean by the pursuit of happiness uh, subjective mental satisfaction. To them, happiness cons consisted of the objective parts of a well-lived human life. It was about human flourishing as human beings were meant to live and flourish, to be able to work, own property, exchange, enrich yourself culturally through the arts, uh, to have a community and participate in a community. These are all substantive moral goods that are essential to a life worth living, and we can and should defend them. So you're right. We need to have a basic vision of what kind of society we want to be and what kind of rights we do proclaim. We need to decide whether those rights are universal and natural, which rights are communal and conditional, which ones can be abridged, which ones are absolutely non-negotiable. We need to get that stuff right. Otherwise, no amount of economic analysis is going to help us figure out how to build the kind of society that we want to live in. Because again, economics can really tell you if you want, for example, uh, a low unemployment rate, you should do XYZ policies. If you want to make sure that you're getting people to work, you should do ABC policies. Now that all seems pretty basic, but I can't answer the question of, should you want those things? What kinds of markets should we want to have? Are there some goods and services that it's simply wrong to exchange? Are there, are there some things that we simply shouldn't put a price on? 
economics as a science can't answer that. You have to turn to moral philosophy. And the integration of economics and moral philosophy is what I mean by the art of political economy. This is not a foreign thing to economics. Once upon a time, economics as a discipline, when it was situated in universities, was actually housed in the Department of Moral Philosophy. Adam Smith, the godfather of modern economics, and one of the great defenders of uh, early modern capitalism, was himself a moral philosopher by training. There's a reason for that. We need to recover this humanistic definition and scope of economics and ultimately remember what it's for. Alexander Salter joining us. Let's talk about that philosophy of economics for just a second, though, because uh, I am not a philosophy major or an economic major, and I'm not even really good at math. My kids will tell you anytime, you know, we were doing Scrabble the other night, and my daughter's just mocking me openly for my word choice and my addition on the score. But here's the thing. Just on a basic, my limited understanding, I like to be an all the above guy as much as I can be. I want to be a rise all boats kind of guy, especially when it comes to the economy. I want the most freedom possible. I want the most opportunity possible. So I've got a problem with socialism. I think it doesn't raise the floor. I think it drops the ceiling and then you end up with two tiers pretty quickly as history tells us. I also understand capitalism is a better system than that, but it's also an imperfect system that needs some guardrails because it feeds into human nature and you can feed too much into human nature and you get into trouble. How do we talk about the philosophy like that, that I think most people think somewhere along those lines of, of course, everybody wants theirs and everybody wants their family and them to do well. I think most normal good people just want everybody to do as well as they possibly can. How do we bring down that philosophy level down to folks that just think that and maybe don't know all the details, but go, hey, we just want an economy that works for everybody. Because most people will say that, and then the divergence comes in how you get that, and then the problems comes with how you get that. Is that kind of a fair way to lay out the big picture of all this? I think so. And it's true that when it, you go to broad ethical values, uh, I think that there's a lot more overlap on those things as it pertains to the economy than is frequently believed. The devil's in the details, right? We disagree massively about how we actually achieve those goals that we have in common which is of course why you need economics in the first place, because economics is the discipline that helps us sort out those claims, right? Take one of the things that we always talk about with our, with our principles of economic students, the economics of the minimum wage. Is it the case that we can sustainably increase the well-being, the material well-being of the least among us by increasing the minimum wage? Well, that's gonna depend on a trade-off because on the one hand, if you raise the minimum wage, people who are working and can work all the hours that they want are taking home more money, which is great. What's the cost? You've priced some people out of the labor market. Some people are not going to be able to get all the hours of work they want if public policy forces up wages because employers can't pay that much, right? When wages go up, employers economize on labor. Just like when the price of anything goes up, people reduce their consumption of it. Some people might not be able to find work at all if you, find them, if you raise the minimum wage. So now you have a difficult ethical trade-off to make. Is it okay to privilege those workers who are fortunate enough to get a job at a higher minimum wage against those who no longer are able to get all the hours of work that they want at the higher minimum wage. So if you want to find policies that lift all boats, 
Perhaps that doesn't seem like such an attractive option since the minimum wage has such differential effects on those who are fortunate enough to find a job versus those who are not. So reasonable people can disagree about that, but I think that it's important that two people should be able to look at the same policy and come to more or less the same conclusion about the effects of the policy. An economist who's pro-minimum wage hike and an economist who's anti-minimum wage hike ideally should be able to consider a given minimum wage hike and agree about what the actual consequences are. What will be the effect on the total amount of hours worked by workers? What will be the effect on the total wage bill, right? The total amount of wages, dollars that workers are bringing home. What will be the effect on unemployment or disemployment? Ideally, we would be able to agree on those things and then we could have our moral disagreements about what those facts mean. But in order to get there, we need an appreciation for basic economics. And unfortunately, I just don't think that we're there yet. Yep, Alexander Salter, you bring up the minimum wage. So let's dovetail where we started with this. Do we need to have a basic conversation on labor, especially, you know, hourly wages, especially entry level jobs, especially service sector kind of stuff? Because we have a service sector economy. We need to kind of, that's a whole nother topic, but we kind of haven't come to terms with the fact we have a service sector economy yet. Do we need to have a discussion just on basic labor? Because we just go to things like minimum wage or hourly employee or salaried or whatever, and we don't talk about worth of labor or how people now have options. I think the days of you work one job 40 years and retire, I think that's probably gone for just about everybody anymore. I think you're going to have to patchwork your labor career one way or the other, whether it's you know multiple jobs or side hustles or whatever. Do we need to change how we talk about labor a little bit as part of this economic stuff we're talking about? I think that we need to focus elsewhere in the labor conversation. So it's interesting that we talked about the minimum wage since uh, that's a very popular example. But in many ways, I think it's one that we actually emphasize a little bit too much. What are the greatest hindrances to people being able to flourish and find meaningful work? I do think the minimum wage is a barrier, but I don't think it's the main barrier. The vast majority of the U.S. labor force is employed at a wage significantly higher than the federal minimum wage. So that price, $7.50 an hour or whatever the federal minimum wage is, isn't terribly relevant to most labor markets. But you look at what's happening. You have, for example, this belief that all these otherwise entry-level and specialized jobs now seem to require a college degree. How did that come to be the case? How did it come to be the case that you need a four-year college degree to do an entry-level job in human resources or marketing or even some accountancy work? That didn't used to be the case. And it's not the case that what we're teaching our students is so much newer and more sophisticated that we're getting them more knowledge. What's happened is that we've turned American education into a degree mill, a rat race, right? An arms race in many ways where everybody has to quote unquote, keep up with the Joneses. So because everybody else has a college degree, you need a college degree too. Even if the line of work that you want to go into is not conducive to having that university background. So now you spent four years and $100,000 just getting a piece of paper that makes you eligible for a job that a generation ago you could have had straight out of high school. So already you're at a material disadvantage. We need to pay much more attention to freeing up labor markets so that people are not burdened by the need to pursue arbitrary credentials just to find meaningful work. It's policies like that that I think are going to make much more of a difference for helping real people improve real lives then debates over whether the minimum wage at the federal level should be $7.50 an hour over, or $8.50 an hour. I think that in many ways, those are peripheral.
Yeah, it's been amazing to watch, too, how a lot of, like, the fast food places out for me, they're offering starting usually double that, if not more. Mm. Right now, it's funny how <laughs> it's almost taken a kind of off the table because so they just need labor so badly, how fast that narrative changed the last couple of years. But there you go. That's what we've been talking about. The philosophy of economics and then the practicum of economics. When they need labor, boy, those wages go up real fast on those offers to get more labor in, don't they? I mean, it's a practical example. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. It's something people see every day, and it's like, okay, this is economics, and it's right in front of you when you go through the drive-thru and you see those please hire or we're hiring, or you see those really – I saw it went viral a while back what Bucky's is paying their you know janitorial staff. I've worked janitorial. I'm glad they're getting money, but people are like, why are you making money? It's like, well, have you ever done that job? It's hard to get folks. That's a practical thing with economics people actually need to pay attention to and think about when they see it, though, isn't it? It is. People need to remember that – Everyone has options. Everyone has some alternative. The problem is that many times those alternatives are not terribly attractive. Many of those alternatives make it difficult to leave a flourishing life. And we can and should address that using policy, I think. But the point is, if you have a massively expanding economy and people have options of where to work, that's going to increase the demand for labor. More demand for labor means all else being equal, higher wages and probably higher other forms of compensation too. You get a free lunch while you're working your shift. You might get benefits at a job that you previously didn't get benefits for. So we need to keep in mind that there are economic forces at work, balancing supply and demand. And many times those forces explicitly work out in ways that are rewarding to labor. One of the narratives that you hear in the public square all the time is that capitalism is a system that benefits capital at the expense of labor. Well, labor actually earns two-thirds of the national income, so I think that you're going to have to go back and revisit that assumption. We can and should be concerned about those who are the least among us. We can and should be concerned with giving those who are on the lower rungs of the ladder a helping hand. But at the same time, we cannot blind ourselves from the normal working of economic forces, ordinary supply and demand, in doing those things. It's one of the reasons that I and many other economists are believers in a private property market-based economy, because we believe that this is the best system in human experience, the best system yet devised for actually helping people improve their circumstances. Yeah, the book is The Political Economy of Distributism. Thank you for putting a B against the T. That's great for my hillbilly accent. Appreciate that. Property, <laughs> liberty, and the common good. Alexander Salter, our good friend. Let folks know where they can find the book where you're going to be. You're going to be all over the place promoting it. Let them know how to keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Here, there, and everywhere. The book is published by Catholic University of America Press. You can find it at their website. You can find it on Amazon. And you can even find a link at my personal website, which is www.awsalter.com. All of my writing is at my website, popular and scholarly, all of my media appearances. So I'll be putting a link to this fine show up there uh, as, soon as, as soon as it goes out. And I would be happy to hear from any of your listeners. I love talking about these ideas, so please don't be shy. Yep, I'll be uh, the Baptist that's happily reading about Catholic social theory. That'll be fun. Always good talking to you, sir. Appreciate your time today. God bless, and good luck to your Mountaineers, except when they're playing the Red Raiders. Fair enough. Take care, sir. <laughs> <laughs>
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.